I'm Karen Long, and you're listening to The Asterix, a production of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. An asterisk is a reference mark indicating an omission. Today, we are figuring out some of the holes in our knowledge with Ilya Kaminsky, the author most recently of Deaf Republic. Professor Kaminsky joins us from Atlanta and he won an Annisfield Wolf Prize for poetry in 2020 for Deaf Republic. Welcome, Professor Kaminsky. Thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled to be in your company, especially in this political season. Can we just start with your thoughts as we see a new chapter in American politics, but one that carries forward so much that is pertinent to, to the topics of deaf republic. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's an interesting day to be in conversation. Um, the second, the beginning of the second day of a new administration. Um, I think interesting because on one side, um, so much jubilation, so much relief uh, to be able to turn the page. And on the other side, um, so much sadness that we have to do, do this, do we have to be turning the page, that so much has been done, that this flurry of activities, so many presidential acts are necessary, and um, that we are so relieved to have basic human rights given back to us. Um, this kind of um, happiness, to my mind, is a strange happiness. Um, and so I thought I would begin with a poem called We Lived Happily During the War. We would love to hear you read that to us. This is We Lived Happily During the War. We Lived Happily During the War And when they bombed other people's houses We protested but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was falling. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. The six months. Of a disastrous trail in a house of money, in a street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money, our great country of money. We, for divas, live happily during the war. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Kaminsky. As I look at those lines and you speak to the falling in America, invisible house by invisible house by invisible house, on this day, it feels like a reference to the pandemic. And yet you wrote this poem, if I am remembering correctly, during the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, um, I wrote this poem during the second invasion of Iraq. 
Um, I was visiting um, a wonderful contemporary poet, a brilliant poet, Eleanor Wilner. Um, Eleanor was so furious with what was happening. And I was a relatively recent Russian immigrant uh, watching um, in surprise that things like that can happen, if you will. Because as an immigrant, you come um, expecting a very different kind of place. Um, and so her, her uh, moral standards were kind of translated into the poem, if you will, at that time. Uh, what it said to me is that um, the poem is still relevant. It wouldn't yeah. be the case, but alas. And it layers other kinds of meetings of disconnection. You know, the way the pandemic has scythed down so many people um, in just 10 months, 400,000 people. And our task of putting the houses back up is domestic and international. Well, I think it's also important to be clear whether it's pandemic that did this or whether um, actual irresponsibility and recklessness of mm -hmm. people who were supposed to handle the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think it is pr probably fairly obvious right now that pandemic should not have reached the level it has at this point. I think that's fair. As I reread Deaf Republic, which I loved doing, thank you. You're so brilliant at keeping the joy and the unhappiness in the same book. I reflected on the repetition that we, the cycle we are caught in, starting with the second poem, which you wrote and dedicated to Jericho Brown. It's the poem called Gunshot, where a boy falls in the street killed by the military. And we see authorities killing boys over and over here. And so gunshot is also sadly as relevant as the day you wrote it. Yes, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. Jacob Brown, who is a very powerful, powerful poet, uh, who writes himself on the subject a great deal. Um, for me, uh, coming from Ukraine, um, I'm kind of a person in transit, if you will. Um, as any immigrant or, or refugee really is. Um, so a part of the book is very much speaking back to Eastern Europe and Ukraine, but um, a large part of the book is also speaking to the United States. And, um, what I was struck by again and again and writing the book, it took about 15 years to do that, is how many similarities there are. Um, when I give a, an, a reading or a public event, people love hearing um, you know, about traveling exotic places like Ukraine. It happens somewhere else. And the audience feel like almost um, they are on Mount Olympus overlooking the rest of the world. But in fact, um, there are gunshots right here in our country. Um, 
and poets like Jerka really show to us very powerfully and uh, discourage and bravely. And so it was um, an honor to be in conversation. I love that. And Jericho also writes of the body very movingly, which I think is one of your great strengths. You and he both live in Atlanta. Have you done readings together? Yeah, we did a number of times. Hooray! We will need to watch for the next time that happens when we are safely able to be together that way. That'd be wonderful. There are lines from Deaf Republic that feel like they are entering our conversations. And of course, the line that is sampled on the back of the book itself feels profound and important. Silence is the invention of the hearing. I love it because it does what Annisfield Wolf literature exists to do, which is shift us so that we are not thinking conventionally. So silence is the invention of the hearing lets us see there are other ways to be. When you won your prize, one of the most beautiful things you said, one of the most important things you said, I believe, is that the disabled body doesn't just belong to the realm of the hospital, but to the realm of the political minority. Would you talk a bit about that? I think it is especially relevant um, at this moment of pandemic, but also in a moment when we speak about health coverage, how few people actually have it. Um, and that makes us really um, stand in front of a question of what does it mean to have a disabled body and whose body is disabled at which point and who is um, in charge of labeling bodies. Right. Um, and um, what I was trying to do, being hard of hearing, um, what I was trying to do is to navigate um, the question of um, at which point deafness is a disability, at which point is it a culture, uh, who calls what a disability, uh, why disability is something that has negative connotations at times in mainstream culture, and how can the tables be turned? And ev perhaps everybody should want to be just like the deaf people. Perhaps um, the deaf people can show a different way to have a communication, which is otherwise unknown to mainstream culture. And uh, what do we mean by that? There have been uh, basic studies done. I have mentioned it before, I think, in our conversation. So I hope it's okay to repeat. For example, um, scientists have put four hearing people from different parts of the world in the same room and left them in the room for six hours. Once they come back, four people stay from Poland, um, South Africa, Mexico, and United States, would sit in different corners of the room and be slightly afraid of each other, not knowing mm. And then they repeated this same situation 
is for deaf people. Now, sign language is not a universal language. Different countries have their different sign languages. And yet, when they come back after six hours, they saw something radically wonderful happen. What happened? Four deaf people were creating a new sign language. Creating so a new language. They were creating a way to communicate. And that tells us at the port, um, one of them loved the spoken language, this written language. One of them loved the speech. And yet one is also acutely aware of limitations of speech. Yes, yes. And I think Deaf Republic invites the reader through the pictograms to think about entering, entering a new kind of speech and building especially the clever way at the end, you allow people to remember the pictogram and find a message. What I was hoping to do um, was to show the video that the community is creating its own language in order to defy the authorities, a language which authorities would not understand. And the reader would go through the book together with the writer the reader would begin to pick up that language as well. The reader would learn some science as well. And as the book proceeds, there are subtitles at the end of science. But as you mentioned it, at the end of the book, there are no yes. subtitles. And yet the reader knows exactly yes. what the science say. So in a way, a reader becomes a part of that community of the book. A community that stands up, a community that um, struggles to stand up a community that preserves despite the difficulties of religion. Remember Rita Dove loving that part of your book, its invitation to think differently. When Peter Ho Davies won an Annisfield Wolf for his novel, The Functions, Margot Lee Shetterly won that year for her book, Hidden Figures, about the African-American mathematicians at Langley who helped usher in the space age. And Peter made the beautiful observation that you could call almost all the Annisfield Wolf books hidden figures. And Margot said, if you want to tell a true story, you need to tell a complete story. I see Deaf Republic helping us see and think and tell more completely. Thank you. I, it's hard for me to talk about my other book. Um, I know what I tried to do um, was to write about how community lives in a complicated situation. And I wanted to make sure that I don't just make um, over the top heroes in the book. They had to be human, they had to be flowered um, in order to be real. Yes. Um, and the the main the main thing for me was to make the reader part of the community of the book and also show the reader the complicity of the community of the book and thereby the complicity of the reader enter that conversation. And now we'll pause for a short break. The Asterix is a project of the Cleveland Foundation to bring more readers and listeners 
into conversation with the best writers in English, in this case, recipients of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. We now return to the conversation. One question poets have is knowing when they're ready to publish. And I know 15 years went into these 60 poems, which is a patience that feels so beautiful and elusive. You write about the patience a man learns from his wife. I wonder about your patience in crafting Deaf Republic or Dancing with Odessa and how you knew when it was ready for the world. The truth is um, a lot of things happened in the writing of the book. Uh, when I first published Dancing, you know, you know, just on my, my first collection in English, it was very much a book about a Russian immigrant, a Yankee really, um, in conversation with the tradition, the language that he lost, that he didn't live among anymore. Um, and that was very much a book written in images because um, I didn't have hearing gates living in USSR. And so the, the language I knew was a language of images. It was probably more written in my mind in images than in English even. But when I finished that book, um, I had to ask myself a real question of, okay, what am I going to do next? Am I still going to play Russian even though I have lived in America for a decade now? What does it mean to live in America for a decade? What is my relationship to the place? And um, around that time, I moved to Southern California, to San Diego, which is a city on the border. And um, a lot of the things that people see on TV now about what is happening on the border um, were not on TV at that time, but very much in the streets of San Diego. San Diego is a place, a beautiful city that calls itself America's finest city, the mm. happiest city. But it is also a place where a lot of um, really terrible things happen. Mm -hmm. um, you can be in a parking lot at Home Depot and see the family being dragged into the ice car. And that is a regular occurrence. It is not an unusual occurrence. Mm. Um, so those things also left me wondering what is my relationship to this? as a young immigrant. And at that same time, um, Ukraine was being invaded by Russia. Right. Uh, a part of Ukrainian territory is still under Russian occupation. And I, I go to Ukraine periodically. And then that I saw were basically leading me to a question how many similarities there are between the places that are so radically different. And there are a whole a lot of similarities. And what does that mean? Uh, perhaps the picture of shining democracy that we tell ourselves, the propaganda of shining democracy that we tell ourselves about ourselves is not exactly true. And um, those images, and I still very much write in language of images, those images mm -hmm. lend themselves um, to a book which I knew had to be a fable um, because uh, as somebody who lives in, in between two cultures 
uh, wanting to speak to both, one needs a kind of a narrative that would uh, work for both. Mm -hmm. And that's how the fable of the book um, was born. But as I was writing, I found myself even publishing in journals very different versions of the mm -hmm. story. Because um, some versions spoke more towards the Ukrainian side and others towards the American side. And um, as a, somebody who's an immigrant, I wanted to, to have something that's true for both, because that's a part of my experience. And right. so I knew that the book was done when it was done, when I felt it was true for both. Fascinating. It also raises for me your transition from lawyer to poet. Those are two radically distinct ways that language works in the precision of the law that works toward removing ambiguity and toward versus the bountifulness of the poem that welcomes multiplicity of meaning. Tell us how you took one road in the woods that led toward poetry from your initial road. I have always um, written poetry before I went to law school. I do have to say that at least for the kind of law I was involved in, which was public interest law, um, I worked as a local clerk at Legal Aid and um, working for National Immigration Law Center in um, Auckland as well. For that kind of law, it's a lot less with, um, a lot less of dealing with a language that prevents people from justice and a lot more of dealing with a language that brings um, equity and uh, human to human. Um, legal aid is all about that, about a line of people who need help and uh, you try yeah. to accommodate as many as you can on a daily basis. Um, that is something that is also very much true in poetry because in poetry, we are all about stories, all about images, all about um, the evidence of the music of what happens. Um, the images are the evidence. Uh, the lawyer is supposed to listen to a long narrative of what happened and pick up just the examples that are more striking and most um, obviously useful in uh, helping the human. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't see that that radical difference? I don't, I don't, and um, there have been, at least uh, for Russian poets or Eastern European poets, um, there have been a plenty who have studied law. I mm -hmm. think the problem with law in the United States is, as you mentioned, is the legal language, the legalism is so different from a language we speak. But that has right. to do with the history of racism, the history of poverty in the United States, how the legal language itself, and also UK, of course, yeah. how the legal language itself was a kind of language that was um, for a specific class and um, not for people who needed protection from that class? Yes, yes. 
And you're making me think of Eric Foner because one of his arguments in his book, The Second Founding, is that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment post-Civil War are, are sleeping. They're, they have not been brought to the fruition thanks to the rulings of the Supreme Court. They could be in putting to right the full rights of people who used to be in slavery or their descendants. So when we spoke with Eric Foner, he was very interested, of course, at about on the mob at the Capitol, but he was more interested, I think, in what happened in your home state. And like you, he was holding both in his conversation. He mentioned how radical it is for the state of Georgia to send an African-American pastor and a Jewish activist the Senate. That the laws of Georgia are set up so that won't happen, according to Professor Foner. So I would love to hear how you're thinking about that development. Well, to my mind, and of course I, um... I don't necessarily live in the state of Georgia. I live in the great city of Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> um, and Atlanta is a modern 21st century city. Georgia sometimes is still a 19th century state. Yes. What do I mean when I say that is um, there are great many people who could vote um, but are unable to for various reasons that um, are illegal. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we see happening in Georgia is people who could vote actually being able to vote. The gates have been opened. So um, when we talk about both sides equal, um, the, this very language of both sides is an invention. Mm -hmm. um, you look at... Um, general vote and you see that there are millions and millions millions more people and same thing happens on a state level how many more people would be able to vote if artificial restrictions that are illegal would be lifted that's my take on the state of georgia i so appreciate that because it's applicable to the state of ohio we have people living in the 19th century in Ohio, and not at all eager to enter the 20th Congress member Jim Jordan is from Ohio. So deaf republic might feel to some readers like its evil twin got unleashed January 6th, that the people who formed a mob did it not to include, but to exclude. How do you think about the template in the hearts of folk in that mob who might see themselves as throwing off their own oppressors? Much of what I say is based on where I grew up. Um, and now I'm going to give that example from USSR. Um, in uh, Russia, contemporary Russia right now, but it began in, in the late USSR. There was a 
politician and Nazi politician who is still very much in uh, Russian version of Congress, named Vladimir Zhirinovsky. The whole country is fully aware that Vladimir Zhirinovsky is telling lies and is supported by secret services or whatever Russian version of uh, people who would like to keep the power. And mm -hmm. um, the whole country is aware that 99% of what he says is not true. And yet he's able to stay in power. Um, if you compare the rhetoric of Vladimir Zhirinovsky to the rhetoric of Donald Trump, how people, two people speak, how they form sentences, how they disrespect people in front of them, mm. it's, um, it's wildly similar. Mm. And um, at the point, one begins to think, okay, what is the relationship between language and uh, conversation that's an honest conversation? How do other countries form propaganda? What we have mm -hmm. in America right now is, of course, very American, but also very similar to nationalism elsewhere. Yes. Very similar to propaganda elsewhere. And perhaps it is useful for us to compare what happened um, just a few days ago, a few weeks ago now, uh, in a Capitol building, to say what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Um, or what is happening in Putin's Russia? Mm -hmm. um, those uh, those things and uh, those, those those things are not exactly dissimilar. Of course, they're very specific to the history of this country. They're very specific to civil war in this country, uh, the slavery in this country. Um, but nationalism is nationalism, and sometimes just opening it on a letter N in a dictionary. Uh, it ex explains quite a lot. I don't want to be stating the obvious, but um, those symptoms are kind of obvious. When one human oh. they are bothers on another, uh, whatever their life story or skin color or whatever else, that is inherently wrong. That is, you know, you can call it racism or nationalism or any other um, thing that unfortunately exists. Um, but um, most humans on the planet would say it's wrong. And we yes. have many examples in history how tragedies arose from that kind of behavior. And it's reminding me of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Instagram, where he talked about his father after the Second World War and the broken men around his father. He was born two years after the war, Arnold was, and he talked about the shame and the drunkenness of the Austrian men who had participated in this exercise of cruelty that Nazism unleashed. And I remember somebody writing about the Trump administration, cruelty is the point. And that seems to echo what you're telling us, Professor Kaminsky, that nationalism or racism, these forms of diminishment sit in cruelty. Um, and it's also a lot of it is um, simply form of propaganda. Was Hitler really interested in German people mm. or was he interested in power? 
is Donald Trump really interested in um, the well-being of those people who were attacking the Capitol building? Or is he interested in a dollar sign? I'm willing to bet that he's interested in a dollar sign. Mm-hmm. Well, you have given us a way to think that is unique and beautiful. And we are in your debt to welcome you into the canon and to be your readers for the rest of your working life. I will wait 15 years for the next book. I hope it's not that long. Thank you, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's truly an honor to be in conversation. And I just want to say that um, no matter at which point we are, it is really important to my mind for us to find value also in things like language and choice of language in a song, in a, a lullaby, in a love poem, in a story. Um, we survive as the humankind. We are able to continue a struggle as the humankind because we tell stories and songs of what happened before and hopes of what might happen in the future. And those are linkages that connect us, that help us to go on. So thank you for making this connection happen and for making this linkages happen over time between books and between people. Thank you. The Asterix is brought to you by the Cleveland Foundation. The executive producer is Alan Ashby, and the producer is Jay Williams of WOVU Radio. I'm Karen Long, who manages the prizes. Thank you for listening. 